This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to learn how to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Bohemian San Francisco The Elegant Art of Dining Section 11 Where Fish Come In and Fish in Their Variety Where Fish Come In It was very early one morning, so early that one of us strenuously pretended sleep, while the other gave urgent reminder that this was the day we were to go to Fisherman's Wharf. Daylight came early, and it was just four o'clock when we began preparations. A cup of hot coffee while dressing served to get us wide awake, and we were off to see the fish come in. Fisherman's Wharf lies over at North Beach, at the end of Meg's Wharf, where the customs officers have their station, and to reach it one takes either the Powell and North Beach cars, or the Kearney and North Beach cars, and at the end of either walks two blocks. When you get that far, anybody you see can tell you where to go. Fog mist was stealing along the Marin shore, and hiding Golden Gate when we arrived, and the rays of the sun took some time to make a clear path out to sea. Out of the bank of white came gliding the heavy power-boats of the Sicilian and Corsican fishermen, while from offshore were the lateen-rigged boats of those who had been fishing up the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers, their yards aslant to catch the faint morning breeze. As they slipped through the leaden water to their mooring at the wharf, we could see the decks and holds piled with fish and crabs. Roosting on piles, and lining the water's edge on everything that served to give foothold, were countless seagulls, all waiting for the breakfast they knew was coming from the discarded fish, and fit companions were the women with shawls over their heads, irreverently called mud-hens, and old men in dilapidated clothing who sat along the stringers of the wharf, some with baskets, some with buckets, and others with little paper bags in which to put the fish which they could get so cheaply. It meant a meal for them when otherwise they would have to go without. The earlier boats were moored, and on the decks fires were burning in charcoal braziers, on which the fishermen cooked their breakfasts of fish and coffee, with the heavy black loaves of bread for which they seemed to have special fancy. As the odor of the cooking fish came up from the water, the waiting gulls and men and women moved a little closer. Breakfast over, the fishermen turned to the expectant crowd and began taking notice of the pitiful offerings of coin. Ten buckets, newspapers, bags, rags, and even scooped hands were held down, each containing such coin as the owner possessed, and in return came bountiful supply of fish. A fine fat crab, for which your market man would charge you forty cents, was sold for ten. 
beautiful, fresh sand-dabs, but an hour or two out of the water were five cents a pound, while sea-bass, fresh cod, mackerel, and similar fish went at the same price. Small fish, or white bait, went by quantity, ten cents securing about half a gallon. Smelt, herring, flounder, sole, all went at equally low prices, and as each buyer secured his allotment, he went hurrying off through the mist, as silently as the floating gulls. While these were all supplied, the rest of the fish and crabs were taken up to the wharf and put on the counters of the free market, where they were sold at prices most tempting. Shrimps, alive and active, crayfish, clams, squid, and similar seafood, was in profusion and sold at prices on a parity with that of the fish. As the day wore on, the early buyers were replaced by those who knew of the free fish market and came to get good supplies for their money. Here were boarding-house keepers, unmistakable anywhere, bohemians in hard luck who remembered that they could get good fish here at a minimum of price, and came now while on the downturn of the wheel. As a human interest study, it was better than a study of fish. Fisherman's Wharf is where the independent fishermen bring their catches to San Francisco, but it is not where the city's great supply comes in. To see that, we had to go along the docks until we came to the Broadway Wharf, where Palladini, the head of the Fish Trust, unloads his tugs of their tons and tons of fish. It is not nearly so interesting to look at, but it gives a good idea of what comes out of the sea every day to supply the needs of San Francisco and the surrounding country. These tugs bring in the catches of dozens of smaller boats, manned by fishermen who are toiling out beyond the heads, and up the two great rivers. From far out around the Farallones, from up around the Potato Patch with its mournful fog, bell, constantly tolling, from down the coast as far as Monterey Bay, where fish are in such abundance that it is said that they have to give a signal when they want to turn around. From up the rivers come fish to the man who has grown from the owner of a small sailboat to be the power that controls prices of all the fish that go to the markets of the city. By the time we finish with Paladini's fish, we felt ready for breakfast, and took a car down to Davis and Pacific, where we found basuros serving breakfast to dozens of market gardeners who had finished their uploading, and there, while partaking of the fresh fish we had brought from Fisherman's Wharf, we saw another phase of San Francisco's early morning life. Here were gardeners who came in the darkness of early morning to supply hucksters, small traders, and a few thrifty people who knew of the cheapness, and in Colombo Market they drove their great wagons 
and discharge their day's gathering of vegetables of all kinds. But a few steps away is the great fruit market of the early morning, and here tons of the finest fruits are distributed to the hundreds of wagons that crowd the street to such an extent that it takes all the ingenuity of experienced policemen to keep clear way for traffic. Threading their way in and out between the wheels and the heels of horses were men and women all looking for bargains in food. Amid a den almost deafening, business was transacted with such celerity that in three hours the streets were cleared, fruits and vegetables sold and on their way to distant stands, and the tired policemen leaning against friendly walls, recuperating after the strenuous work of keeping order in chaos. It is when one goes to these places in the morning and sees the cheapness of these foods that we can understand in a small way why it is that so many Italian restaurants can give such good meals for so little money. One wonders at a table d'hote dinner of six or seven courses for twenty-five cents, or even for half a dollar, and one accustomed to buying meats, fish, vegetables, and fruits at the exorbitant prices charged at most of the markets and fruit and vegetable stands, now sees why the thrifty foreigner can make and save money, while the average American can hardly keep more than two jumps ahead of the sheriff. FISH AND THEIR VARIETY Probably the most frequent question asked us by those who come to San Francisco is, where can we get the best fish? With San Francisco's wonderful natural advantages as a fish market, one is sometimes surprised that more attention is not given to preparing fish as a specialty. But one restaurant in the city deals exclusively with seafood, and even there one is astonished at an overlooked opportunity. Darby and Emil have catered to San Francisco in oysters for many years, and after the fire they opened the Shellfish Grotto in O'Farrell Street, between Powell and Mason Streets and this is one of the very few distinctive fish restaurants in the country. It is when one considers the possibilities that a shock comes from the environing decorations, white and gold pillars with twining ivy reaching to the old gold and rose mural and ceiling embellishments seem out of place in a restaurant that is devoted entirely to catering to lovers of fish. Nothing in the place indicates its character, except the big lobster in front of the building. Not even so much as a picture to bring a sentiment of the ocean to the mind. We are going to take a liberty, although possibly Darby and Emil may call it an impertinence, and give them a bit of advice. It costs them nothing. Consequently, they can act on it or not, and it will make no difference. This is our suggestion. Change the interior of the place entirely. 
by having around the walls a series of large glass aquaria, with as many different kinds of fish swimming about as it is possible to get, something on the order of the interior of the aquarium in Battery Park in New York. Paint the ceiling to represent the surface of the water, as seen from below. Have seaweed and kelp in place of ivy, and a fish net or two caught up in the corners of the room, with here and there a starfish or a crab, not too many, for profuseness in this sort of decoration is an abomination. Then you will have a restaurant that will be talked about, wherever people sit at meat. But to get back to our talk about fish, and where to get it prepared and cooked the best, we must say that the finest fish we have eaten in San Francisco was not in the high-priced restaurants at all, but in a little dingy back room, down at Fisherman's Wharf, where there was sand on the floor, and all the sounds of the kitchen were audible in the dining-room. The place was patronized almost solely by the Italian fishermen, who not only know how to catch a fish, but how it ought to be cooked. One may always rest assured that when he gets a fish in one of the Italian restaurants, it is perfectly fresh, for there are two things that an Italian demands in eating, and they are fresh fish and fresh vegetables. At the Gianduja at Union and Stockton Streets, one is certain to get fish cooked well, and that is perfectly fresh. The variety is not so good as at the Shellfish Grotto, but otherwise it is just as good in every respect. At the Grotto there is a wonderful variety, but the quantity is at the minimum, because there, too, they will have no fish that has been twenty-four hours out of the water. One wonders how a full-course dinner entirely of fish can be prepared, but if you will go to the Shellfish Grotto, you will find it is done, and done well at that. Here you can get a good dinner for one dollar, or, if you prefer, they have a fish dinner deluxe, for which they charge two dollars. Both are good, the latter having additional wines and delicacies. Down in Washington Street, just off Columbus Avenue, is the Vesuvius, an Italian restaurant of low price, but excellent cooking. A specialty there is fish, which is always brought fresh from the nearby Clay Street Market as ordered. Consequently, it is perfect. When you give your order, a messenger is dispatched to the market, and usually he brings the fish alive, and the chef prepares it in one of his many ways, for he is said to have more secrets about the cooking of fish than one would think it possible for one brain to contain. The trouble about this restaurant is that the rest of the menu does not come up to the fish standard, but if you desire a simple luncheon of fish, there is no better place to get it. There are three things in which an Easterner will be disappointed in San Francisco, and these are oysters. Pacific Coast oysters fail in size, flavor, and cooking when compared with the luscious bivalve of the Atlantic, so far as the ordinary forms of preparation are concerned. Even fancy dishes such as oysters Kirkpatrick would be better if made of the eastern oyster, not what they call the eastern oyster here, for that is a misnomer, but the oysters that grow in the Atlantic Ocean. Of the Pacific oysters, the best is the Toke Point, 
that comes from Oregon. They are similar in size to the blue point, but lack the flavor. When in a San Francisco restaurant you are asked what sort of oyster you will have, and you see the familiar names on the menu card, remember that these are transplanted oysters, and have lost much of their flavor in the transplanting, or else they are oysters that have been shipped across the continent, and have thereby lost their freshness. The California oyster, proper, is very small, and it has a peculiar coppery taste, which bon vivants declare add to its piquancy. Instead of ordering these by the dozen, you order them by the hundred, it being no difficult task to eat a hundred at a meal, especially when prepared in a pepper roast. Everyone knows the staple ways of preparing oysters, and every chef looks upon the oyster as the source of new flavors in many dishes, but to our mind the best way we have found in San Francisco was at a little restaurant down in Washington Street before the fire. It was the Bon Gusto, where they served fish and oysters better than anything else, because the owners were the chefs, and they were from the island of Catalan, off the coast of Italy. Their specialty was called oysters a la Catalan, and their recipe, which is given, can be prepared excellently in a chafing dish. Oysters a la Catalan Take one tablespoonful of butter, two teaspoonfuls grated Edam or Parmesan cheese, four tablespoonfuls ketchup, one half teaspoonful Worcestershire sauce, two teaspoonfuls cream, meat of one good-sized crab, cut fine, and two dozen oysters. Put the cheese and butter into a double boiler, and when melted smooth, add the ketchup and Worcestershire sauce, mix well, and add the cream and then the crab meat. When creamy and boiling hot, drop in the oysters. As soon as the oysters are crinkled, serve on hot buttered toast on hot plates. In the days before the fire, when you went to a restaurant and ordered fish or oysters, the waiter invariably put before you either a plate of crab salad or a dish of shrimps, with which you were supposed to amuse yourself while the meal was being prepared. Shrimps and crabs were then so plentiful that their price was never considered. Under our new conditions, these always appear on the bill when ordered, and if they be not ordered, they do not appear, for they now are made to increase the income. To the uninitiated visitor, the shrimps so served were always something of a mystery, and after a few futile efforts to get at the meat, they generally gave it up as too much work for the little good derived. The old-timer, however, cracked the shrimp's neck, pinched its tail, and out popped a delicious bon bouche, which added to the joy of the meal and increased the appetite. But there are many other ways of serving shrimps, and they are also much used to give flavor to certain fish sauces. One of the most delicious ways of preparing shrimp is what is known as shrimp creole a la Antoine, so named after the famous New Orleans Antoine, by a chef in San Francisco who had regard for the New Orleans caterer. We doubt it can be had anywhere in San Francisco now, unless you are well enough known to have it prepared according to the recipe. This recipe, by the way, 
is a good one to use in a chafing-dish supper. This is the way it was prepared at the Old Pup Restaurant, one of the noted restaurants before the fire and the earthquake changed conditions. Shrimp Creole Take three pints of unshelled shrimps and shell them. One-half pint of cream, two tablespoons full of butter, two tablespoonful of flour, two tablespoonfuls of ketchup, one wine glass of sherry, paprika, chili powder, and parsley. Brown the flour in the butter, and add the milk until it is thickened. Color with the ketchup, and season with paprika, and chili powder. Stir in the sherry, and make a pink cream, which is to be mixed through the shrimps, and not cooked. Sprinkle with chopped parsley, and serve with squares of toast or crackers. End of section 11. Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox, summer 2006.